Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source for insights and best practices on the digital transformation of healthcare. Join host Patty Patmanaban, CEO of Demo Consulting and best-selling author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how consumerism, technology, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with healthcare and technology leaders. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox. Hello again, and welcome back to my podcast. Uh, This is a real honor and a privilege for me. I am about to interview the authors of a remarkable report published recently by McKinsey. And the title of that report is Telehealth, a quarter trillion dollar post-COVID reality. Jenny and Oleg. Thank you so much for joining the show. Welcome and uh, love to dive right in and ask you to help us unpack that question. What did your study find? Thank you so much, Petty, and uh, uh, thank you for having us. Worth noting that the article stopped with a question mark. Is it going to be a, a reality, this quarter trillion dollar opportunity? The original article, which we looked at uh, more than a year ago, tried to outline the potential for telehealth. And we came to this figure that was very close to $250 billion of care that could potentially be shifted, given the underlying fundamentals, to telehealth. We looked at it recently to say what has happened since the pandemic started and how has this evolved? And uh, the key findings for this refreshed uh, report are that we're seeing somewhere around 13 to 17% of all office visits and outpatient visits in the U.S. claims actually going through telehealth means. And that represents, on average, anywhere between 30 to 40 times the pre-pandemic levels. And so we are excited to see that this level has been fairly stable since uh, June of last year and uh, with, with variability continued since June, since the initial spike of the initial wave in April 2020 subsided throughout the full year up until now. And obviously, underneath that high-level figure of 40 times the pre-pandemic levels and 13 to 17% on average telehealth adoption, there's a lot of variability in specialties. So we were also quite excited to look at how the adoption differs by specialties as well. Let me pause there, Jenny. I would love to just get your take on that as well. Yeah, what I would add is, as we look at some of the drivers of this, um, we saw initially huge increases in both consumer demand for telehealth and provider demand due to the realities of being in the midst of the COVID crisis. What we're seeing is that perceptions have largely stayed very positive, and providers in particular, many of whom did not use a lot of telehealth prior to COVID, have much better perceptions of it than before. Many do intend to continue using it. And we see similar results when we look on the consumer side. 
What's really exciting also is we're seeing just a lot more proliferation of innovative business models going well beyond just a pure telehealth visit, but to really integrate you know, hybrid models of care, integrate telehealth with remote monitoring. I'm so excited to see how this continues to evolve going forward in a post-pandemic world. Quick question. What are you including in the definition of uh, telehealth and virtual care? Yeah, so for, for telehealth specifically, and that, that is what we did our claims analysis on, it would be you know, virtual and telephonic-based visits that are coded as such in claims data. When I think about virtual health more broadly, would expand that to include remote monitoring, would expand that to include digital therapeutics, asynchronous as well as you know, synchronous visits, but more a broader set of ways to receive care, not in person. Now, you referred to the, the report from last year, and uh, and the volumes, obviously, when you published the report last year, had gone through the roof in the immediate wake of the pandemic. And all indications, uh, including what your study has found, is that those volumes have dropped off a little bit, but they're still higher, uh, significantly higher than pre-pandemic levels. So are we at an equilibrium? Are we evolving towards an equilibrium? What are you seeing? What is your sense? Thank you. I think when we think about the equilibrium, I would like to think about what is the true future potential. And the figure that was put out there, the $250 billion. But when you, when you reflect on what does it mean, you know, part of it means that, you know, quarter of all of the visits in the future can, in theory, potentially be done virtually. And when you compare it to where it is today, which is 13 to 17% of claims, you're saying, actually, it's a big positive surprise that it has gotten to such a high level so quickly and uh, fairly close to, to the potential that we've outlined. But then you ask yourself a question, and, and we've gotten this feedback from some of our readers about a year ago to say, well, 25% is way on the low side, that the potential is much greater. So I think I hope that we're not in equilibrium. I hope that it actually continues to improve. But I'd like to make this provocative statement that, you know, telehealth as a video conference between a doctor and, and the patient quickly becomes commoditized. And it's in and of itself improves convenience and access. But uh, the potential for delivering innovation that leads to achieving triple aim goal of healthcare of better quality better member experience and and, and lower potential avoidable costs it just becomes such a, a great enabler of many more things to come such as can you combine telehealth visits with remote patient monitoring applications to deliver better care at uh, home for the elderly for example and so i think uh, when we're taking a look at this we do hope that spurred by the investor activity, spurred by the consumer adoption, spurred by the provider adoption, we will see a lot more innovation that will see even greater adoption of telehealth. Maybe to play devil's advocate, though, you know, there's also trends that could evolve that could cause it to go down again. So I, I don't think we're in an equilibrium by any sense and continued innovation is going to be required to sustain and expand the applications as it becomes easier for people to also see their, their doctor in person. It has to be really convenient. There has to be a seamless user experience. We're seeing more and more push towards not having telehealth as a siloed experience with the provider you see once, but really having integrated data, integrated care. So it's really used to help you manage your care. 
And on the provider side, will reimbursement stay is a big question. Can this become a more seamless part of provider workflows too, especially as we think about providers who may be offering a hybrid model, not just a pure uh, virtual health offering? So I think there's still a lot of ways this could evolve that could you know, push it in both directions. And I've mentioned, alluded to it in the beginning, that when you take a look by specialty, there's a lot of variability in adoption. Some of the most exciting things we've seen is that when you take a look at psychiatry visits or substance use treatment disorder visits, the level of adoption is much higher than average. You know, more than half of all the psychiatry visits, as we look at claims right now, are conducted using telephonic or telehealth means, which means greater access to, to mental health care. And I think uh, the, the innovations that Jenny is talking about are going to evolve in the microcosm for the different kinds of specialties as well. And then the end state may be that in the future, we'll see a lot more happening in the space of telebehavioral health than some other specialties or not. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So that's what we see as well. There's a lot of tele, but then the devil's in the details. And so let's, let's kind of drill down on that a little bit, Oleg. And I want to come back to one of your earlier comments, Jenny, in a minute. But just to pursue that that uh, thought that you just talked about. Like, there's obviously a lot of difference between how the adoption rates play out based on the types of care, based on the settings of care, you know, rural versus urban, and within urban, you've got the inner city versus the more affluent areas, socioeconomic factors, demographics, etc. Can you break that down a little? What has your study shown you when it comes to breaking this down along these multiple dimensions, a uh, few of which I talked about just now. Thank you. Yeah. And even though we did not touch upon in the report in terms of figures, our colleagues have gone uh, into analyzing the data. And it does seem that there is a higher adoption level in the rural setting where the access issues are also much more prominent and pronounced than there is in the urban settings. There's also a lot of uh, research going on right now in terms of how does telehealth help or maybe set back the question around health equity, access to health and access to the equal high quality opportunities amongst the various strata of the population and, and in the various society, social economic backgrounds. It's still not clear as to what effect it has had, but I do believe that technology, that telehealth, virtual health in general espouses has a great promise to not only innovate around care models and care delivery, but also make significant step forward to better health equity, you know, across the society, whether it would be, you know, geography, demographics, or socioeconomic backgrounds. Jenny, uh, let me come back to one of the comments you made. And we love talking about the yin and yang of everything on this podcast. And so I love the fact that you brought up the real possibility to me, it's a real possibility that telehealth visits may actually go down even further from where we are today before we settle somewhere. Uh, we all hope that it's eventually going to pick back up and become an integral and a companion component of all kinds of care going forward. You mentioned one headwind, which is the reimbursement environment, which, of course, in healthcare, everything is about following the money. What else could be a significant headwind? from your viewpoint and what has your study indicated, if anything? It's a great question. Um, there's probably a few. One would be just if, how seamless is the experience? 
we do almost everything or we can do almost everything online today, but some are easier than others. So is it you know, one click to access and all my data populates and you know, I get my readout afterwards or is everything really fragmented? I'm probably much more likely to continue using telehealth if it's all seamless. As we think about you know, populations that really have more complex conditions and need the management, the data integration also becomes really important as well. There are also some questions that are still being worked through around quality and what are the right sets of conditions or symptoms really do suit themselves well to a telehealth visit versus in person. And as providers work through the clinical models, that will impact what's done telephonically or by video versus in person as well. So I think some of those are the pieces that we'll see continuing to be worked through. Let's talk about the experiences. The fragmented nature of the healthcare experience is not new news. And uh, it, healthcare is definitely behind other sectors, uh, e-commerce, personal banking, securities, you know, you can name a whole host of them as it relates to the seamless experiences. There are some real infrastructure issues that that make it hard to create that seamless experience, such as interoperability issues, but there are also design issues. Where do you think of health systems and uh, you know large health plans, where do you think they are today when you look at the spectrum of your client base and whatever other research that you've done? Where are we and are we seeing a real difference between uh, the performance of those who are ahead in this game when I say performance, I mean like financial and business performance. Are we seeing a real difference between those who are ahead and those who are you know, a little bit further behind? Does it make a difference? Yeah, great question. I think uh, in general, we are seeing a lot of variability in, into how much the various players and the various companies are investing and, and treating this seriously, this space, right? And how much they're investing in the underlying capabilities and a lot has to go into the data enablement and aggregation and interoperability capabilities. But all of the things related to seamless workflows, uh, you know, uh, working seamlessly with EMR, within the EMR or EHR, working across payer provider boundaries, I do hope that the ones, the, the leaders uh, who are really leaning ahead and saying this is here to stay and therefore we're going to invest strategically into these capabilities are going to come up with the innovations ar- around the way that they approach the day-to-day workflows, uh, create whether it's a virtual only model, a virtual first model or a hybrid model is, that is seamlessly integrated offline and online experience for members are going to become better at this in the future than those that are saying like, let's wait and see and and, uh, see what happens. Also, just like with lots of other spaces, I think a lot of innovation, quite frankly, today is driven not so much by large systems, large health plans, but actually by smaller startups that are trying to find a niche to innovate around and, and then try to scale it. In general, I would say I'm, I'm uh, quite glad to see the level of investment and level of excitement about the space to be as high as it is, because I do hope that all of these investments ultimately result in better competitiveness and, and truly disrupting some of the care models and, and, and making care better for everybody. What we're also really starting to see is you know, the large players, payers, big health systems, value-based providers, they've signed up for or are currently being inundated by a lot of different point solutions. And saying, okay, we signed up for you know this for this condition and this for this and this for convenience for this segment of our members. 
how do we actually stitch it together? And really trying to take that step back and you know, create the ecosystem that's a more curated experience as part of this. Yeah, in your report, you refer to the VC funding levels for digital health, which is driving a lot of innovation. It's one thing for a lot of startups to get funded and to drive innovation. It's another thing for health plans and health systems to adopt the solutions, make it work. And it's yet another thing altogether for consumers to really use it and make a difference. So I'm going to ask a provocative question. How much of that is hype? $15 billion in VC money, is that translating into corresponding levels of income or you know, revenue, adoption rates, and so on? Or are we in some kind of a bubble here? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have a, a number on like percent that's hype, but I, I think if you look at some of the moves that really big players are making, it's not just startups. So lots of acquisitions by the large health plans, by large retailers, big tech companies continuing to expand and innovate and broaden their portfolio of service offerings in this space, um, that this isn't just a startup game. I would add to that that um, we're already starting to see some real innovation here. I mean, like when it comes around innovation of te- telehealth technology itself, it, it quickly innovated. It's it's a video conference that is HIPAA compliant. And, you know, you can now launch a telehealth visit without even downloading an app just in your browser. That's, that's fabulous. But when I look at innovation in a, a little bit of a broader sense and bigger sense, we're also seeing that for some conditions, there are truly remarkable ways in how care has changed compared to even a decade ago, where you're combining AI-driven behavioral nudges that are automated to the member with great member experience, with great uh, behavioral coaching, and with remote patient monitoring packed all in one seamless end-to-end offering to really make a dent in the care and in the outcomes for a condition. So my hope is that, you know, investments lead to innovation. And it doesn't mean that all of these investments will play out and pay out, but it does give me hope that uh, some of this leads to true groundbreaking innovation. And we're really on the cusp of it in the next uh, few years. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox. Let's talk about the landscape. So you mentioned big tech firms, you mentioned uh, digital health, startups, you also mentioned the more mature digital health companies will still remain private, but they're operating at some level of scale. When you look at the marketplace in terms of the opportunity landscape, you know, at the one end, you see the Amazons, Microsoft, they're making big moves. At the other end, you see a lot of these small companies raising series A money or seed, seed rounds and so on, but they have something interesting and there's everything in between. Where do you see the most traction? You know, you, you talked about the fragmented experience and the need to stitch to other technologies. How are your clients, well, how are health systems and health plans looking at this technology landscape when they make the trade-offs? How are they thinking through this in your experience? I feel like there's a, an almost a bifurcated value proposition that's emerging. There's a series of solutions that are forming around convenience. I'm going to generalize here, but for generally healthy populations that need convenient access to more routine care. And this can be you know, the e-triage symptom checkers that then can feed into a telehealth visit, that then can connect to deliver your prescription home, you know, in some cases even having home visits tagged on as, uh, as needed, but very much around you know, convenience and that improved experience. Oftentimes, maybe more targeted towards you know large employer health offerings, for example. 
And then we also see similar levels of innovation, but more around you know, chronic conditions or behavioral health or specific populations that have more complex needs. And it's how do you integrate the technology into those care journeys to improve outcomes, improve cost of care, and improve quality of care. So we're seeing some of those two models play out, I'd say, really across different, uh, different types of players, across what we're seeing the tech companies invest in, what health plans are interested in, health systems as well. I am curious to know also whether there is a there is a real possibility that a lot of the business is now going to fall into the hands of the employers who are emerging as a buying force. In many cases, some of the mature companies are actually target them as a primary market segment. And so what do you think of that trend? Do you think employers are going to become a significant force that's going to chip away at a you know big part of the overall healthcare services marketplace. What, what is your view? I think we already are observing that they are indeed, uh, are becoming a big force here and are a purchaser of some of these innovative solutions. And to the kind of, to the point of bifurcation that Jenny has mentioned right now, there's a lot that is being done around, well, how do we increase convenience for getting healthcare for our employee base and and actually looking at it not only from the lens of what leads to you know reduction in avoidable medical expense but also what leads to better member experience and can be used as a talent retention and attraction mechanism and what leads to to better productivity and happiness if you will that is kind of a byproduct of some of these solutions so i think we're we already are seeing an increasing level of purchasing and spending on solutions in this space. And once again, it's different kinds of solutions. You know, some of them are targeting, you know, well-being and, and uh, you know, tackling anxiety and depression. Some of them are tackling things related to convenience of routine care and low acuity access to care by skipping the, the waiting rooms. But I do think that uh, going forward, this hopefully will continue to, to increase and, and employers will continue to be or become even bigger of a voice having the same here. And on the other side of, of the fork that Jenny has mentioned, also, when you look at the employer base and, and people who have employer-sponsored insurance, there is no doubt a, a great need for solutions that address the chronic care needs of, of the employee base that address some of the planned procedural base and and telehealth and virtual care broadly and remote patient monitoring can go a long ways and making that experience better and and hopefully leading down the line to reduced uh, medical exacerbations that are avoidable. So you mentioned the bifurcation. So let let me throw up another bifurcation uh, for you to comment on. So you've got access to care, which is one big area of digital health innovation, for want of a better word, you know, digital front doors and all of that stuff. And the other side is the actual care delivery. Where are you seeing more traction based on your research and and based on your client experiences? So Oleg just mentioned uh, chronic disease management. So remote patient monitoring would be what I call care delivery, chronic condition management using remote sensors, devices, and so on. And it's all bundled into things like population health management, chronic care management, and so on. That is care delivery for me. But access is more what you describe. You know, can I do a one-click, find a doctor of my choice, you know, you know, look at his or her 
ratings and rankings, find a spot on his or her schedule, you know, book an appointment and do a primary care visit. It's more to do with access. Thank you, Patty. I think uh, it was interesting because when when the initial spike of wave of the pandemic hit in kind of late March, early April, it was the usage of telehealth was almost predominantly this. I cannot go visit a doctor who I typically visit regularly. Help me connect to anybody and talk to them. And so it led to the hypergrowth of the space we call virtual urgent care, which is connecting to a, to a random doctor on a low acuity, hopefully, or some level of acuity urgent issue that you need resolution on right now. And uh, it helped a lot of solving those access issues. It was not so much about convenience. It was literally overcoming the, the access issues that and barriers that, that came as part of the pandemic initial wave. But as we're looking at, and this is you know what we analyzed in the original report, the value that the potential value of that of virtual urgent care as a use case is actually a small part of the overall you know, total potential and the bigger part is around what you would describe of the delivery component of it which is let's now innovate around care models and how that is done having said that i think the lines are kind of blurring and, and gray so we, we had this category which we call near virtual visit which is okay well for the sake of convenience can you have the visit part of this being virtual, but then still some of the services need to be in person, such as a blood draw or a lab test? And can you combine the two to create both a convenient aspect, but that still yet innovates on the way that care is delivered? And so those are some of the interesting use cases that I hope to see grow and scale up and proliferate going forward as well. Yeah. I think on the access side is also some interesting questions about how do you, what we're seeing more and more is people want convenient access. They now want it with their doctor, not just assigned doctor through a telehealth app. And so how do we create, use technology to create better access, but to the care that you know, people want or is that they're familiar with? Well, this has been very insightful. We're coming up to the end of our time here. And I'd really like to ask both of you to comment on what would you advise health systems and health plan executives who are trying to sort through this changing landscape, the shift towards virtual care and are faced with big investment decisions as it relates to technology and, uh, you know, really transforming the organizations. Maybe take a minute or two, both of you, and uh, what is the advice you would give to healthcare executives and leaders? I would say to really have a clear view of what are the sources of value from virtual health that your organization can drive. And that's going to look quite different if you're a large health system or a payer or a risk-bearing provider group. But there's so many solutions out there and so many different strategies that, that you could pursue, really understanding what you're trying to optimize around for your patients or members, if it's you know, access, improved outcomes and cost improved convenience and like having that North Star to focus on and help you know, cut through the chaff. I would completely agree with Jenny. I would add also that viewing virtual health as a tool in the toolbox to really help break away in a sense that you can break the mold on what and how you deliver care and how you generate value in the system, right? And to think about 
this is one component. This doesn't mean that it needs to shift, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other, but this is one component where you can deliver true innovation to, to your patients and to your consumers. And in doing so, achieve triple aim goals. So I would start with saying, what are the components of the triple aim goal that you're trying to achieve with virtual care? And how does it fit into your current and existing care delivery strategy and how the two tie together, which then leads to answer the questions that Jenny is, is, is posing around which use cases, you know, how do you exactly go about it? Which solutions you double down on? Because the one exciting part of the, about the markets is that it's very fragmented. Lots of change is happening at breakneck speed and uh, not clear yet how those various parts will emerge. But this is also where health systems and health plans can view themselves as shapers of what the future destiny can become. And, and some of them setting themselves apart from the competition. Great, great. So identify your sources of value and work backwards from there to figure out what you need to be doing to get there. Am I really be right? Fantastic. This has been such a fantastic conversation. We're going to have to leave it there for today, but I really, really appreciate uh, both of you coming on to talk to me about your report. I look forward to following your research and uh, hopefully we'll have another conversation on the next version of this report, which may be a year from now. But in the meantime, I look forward to following you and your work and thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot, Betty. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can reach us at info at thebigunlock.com with your feedback and questions. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox.